Hi, folks. Welcome back to Vox Tablet, the podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm your host. I'm Sarah Ivory. Today, memories of a stowaway. Not long ago, a coworker told me an unbelievable story about, let me see if I've got this right, her husband's mother's cousin. Apparently, when this cousin was just 14 years old, he tried to run away to Israel by sneaking onto an LL jet. It's the kind of thing that could never happen today, but back in the 60s, before the TSA and sniffer dogs at every airport, it could. When I heard the story, I knew we had to get in touch with this man, Victor Rodak. He's now a psychiatrist in his 60s, and he lives in Queens, where we visited him to get more details. Julie Subrin reports. When Victor Rodak was just a kid in far Rockaway, Queens, he fell in love with Israel. This wasn't because of his parents, who only seemed to remember they were Jewish when the high holidays rolled around. He says it started with a library book. Called uh, Journey to the Promised Land. It was about a Yemenite family and their trip to Israel, and I discovered Israel. And what impressed me was Israel seemed to be a place where children, I was a child obviously at the time, um, were welcomed. You know, stories about the Holocaust and children who were orphans were brought to Israel and taken care of and given love and attention and all these wonderful things. As the eldest of four kids, maybe Victor felt like those wonderful things were in short supply at home. Anyway, about the same time, Victor also fell in love with international travel, or at least the idea of it. This, he says, came from his mom. My mother, when we were kids, she would take us down to see big ocean liners the day that they sailed, because back then you could visit these big ships. She had the wanderlust. She wanted to travel. She never traveled very much, but she wanted to go to Europe. And we were, if we misbehaved, she'd threaten us and say, if you don't behave, I'm not taking you on the boat to Europe. By the time Victor was in his mid-teens, these two passions, Israel and international travel, were starting to kind of converge into some sort of a plan. One morning, Victor noticed an ad in the weekend newspaper next to the listings for summer camps and language programs. Come and spend an academic year in Israel. It was for 10th graders. Victor desperately wanted to apply, but there was just one problem. You know, my background was very modest. We, there were four kids in the family. My father was sort of like blue collar. I worked on the waterfront. We lived in public housing, and we had very limited means. But nevertheless, when I saw that particular program, a high school year in Israel, I wrote to uh, that school. I wrote a letter and basically said, look, this is who I am. This is what I want. I don't think it's fair that just the rich kids get to go to Israel. You know, I was, I was a kid. And lo and behold, a week later, I come home from school. And my mother's got this strange expression on her face. And she tells me she got a call from a rabbi affiliated with this program, and they want to figure out a way for me to go. So I was beside myself with excitement. But this was, I should tell you, I guess late May 1967. And a few days later, the war started, the June War. And uh, somehow we lost contact. There was no follow-up. I never heard from them again. And that was the end of that. So now... I had to go to a plan B. I had to figure out some other way to get there. Victor lived pretty close to JFK Airport, and he'd already established himself as kind of an airplane nerd. Uh, in junior high school, I sat in the back of the room, and I could see the planes coming in, and I would tell people, oh, that's Alitalia, or that's Erlingus. And when it was an El Alchet, I was, like, very excited. 
Now he started riding his bike out to JFK and snooping around whenever he got the chance. I would go to the airport and I was observing how flights were boarded, documentation you needed to get on the plane. And then uh, as a test case, I um, tried to get on a plane that was, it was a British Airways. At the time it was BOAC, British Overseas Air Corporation. I just wanted to see how far I could get. So I get down to the tarmac, I go up the steps, no one stops me, and I'm just about to get on the plane when a gentleman in a uniform sees me and asks me, what am I doing there? And I think I said something very naive, like, oh, I just wanted to look. The man in the uniform was not amused. He marched Victor into his office and did his best to scare him straight. Not quite threatening, but telling me I can get into serious trouble and um, he would tell my father. Victor was undeterred. For me, what I took away from that was, I could get on an airplane. Victor knew there was just one direct flight a week, New York, Tel Aviv. That flight left on Sunday evenings. So the day came in August. I think I had an argument with my father. Just the pretext that I needed to make this decision to go. So I called up my friend Dennis, and it was, you know, with some forethought. I didn't want to just disappear. I felt responsible for my parents. I knew that if I didn't come home, uh, they would freak. They would, you know, it would be horrible. Plus, I had three younger siblings. You know, they needed to have parents. You know, so I was just thinking of all these things. So anyway, I speak to Dennis. He says, oh, he comes to me to the airport. It wasn't the first time. And we go to the LL terminal. And, um, you know, it's that excitement of a departing flight. People are there, they're checking in, luggage everywhere, family everywhere, Hasidim, you know, the, the whole thing. And it dawns on me that um, you need a boarding pass to get on a plane. This was my revelation. Now, it came as a shock because here I'm all set to go, and now what am I going to do? Lo and behold, I see at the check-in desk a pile of these boarding passes. And so I guess maybe the most high-risk moment of this whole thing was walking over to the edge of that desk, that check-in counter, and blatantly just reaching over and taking one. And I really expected someone would see me. But nothing happened. So now I had a boarding pass. I was all set to go. And uh, so now they announce overhead, you know, departure, gate 24. So I knew from my research, everyone's going to go down gate 24. They might have to show tickets, passports, whatever. They'd end up with their boarding pass. But if I went down gate 23, remember, this was in the 60s. There was nobody there. There was no check-in. There was nothing. So everyone's going down gate 24. I go down gate 23. Dennis is with me. We go out the door onto the tarmac. And at that point, Dennis says to me, this is crazy. You can't do this. I'm leaving. And so Dennis turns, turns around and just walks away from me. So now, what are my options? Am I going to follow Dennis, like, you know, with my tail between my legs? I kind of, I guess he gave me the impetus. So now I see people getting on the plane, and they had their boarding pass in their hand, but part of their boarding pass was removed. I guess as you go through that door, the flight attendant or somebody takes it off. So they, you know, so I took off the top of mine and put it in my pocket and I went like everyone else with this boarding pass in my hand. And the first decision point was, you know, if people were going up the front of the plane and the back of the plane, it was actually a Boeing 720. So I think it was a 720B to be precise. Anyway, 
So I decided to walk towards the front of the plane and I go up the steps, you know, with everybody else. And now I'm thinking, what am I going to do if there's that seat is taken? You know, what you can't just say, whoops, I'm on the wrong plane. I got to go. You know, I knew it would be serious trouble. But I go and I find the seat and lo and behold, there's nobody in it. So I sit down just by the window on the left side. And uh, there's, a, there's a seat in between me and the aisle seat. And there's a woman sitting on the aisle, a very nice young woman. Um, oh, did you ever fly before? She asks me. I said, no, I've never flown before. And, you know, she's just making pleasant conversation. Then I feel a, a, a hand on my shoulder and I look up and it's a flight attendant offering a little basket of candy. I took some candy. And so I'm sitting there and now I see a guy in a uniform walking down the aisle counting people counting. So I'm thinking, oh, wow, the jig is up. He goes by, nothing happens. And now it gets very, very quiet. See, they had closed the door. And now they say overhead, you know, something in Hebrew. And suddenly this thing is slowly starting to move. They make the announcement, welcome aboard. You know, they speak in Hebrew and then they say it in English and we're flying to Tel Aviv, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm like in some altered space. You know, you can't imagine how excited I was. But so now we're moving past the terminal and everybody's up there waving at the plane, you know, and that's where I would be in the past watching the plane leave. And now I'm in the plane and uh, we're proceeding through the taxiways. And now the plane stops and there's another announcement overhead. Now, at this point, I'm very anxious because until the plane gets off the ground, I'm at high risk. Plus, Dennis, my loose cannon buddy, he's out there somewhere. I don't know what he's doing, what he's saying, who he's talking to. So I'm sweating. And so there's this announcement in Hebrew, and the announcement was something like, well, there are, you know, 12 planes ahead of us waiting for takeoff. We will be delayed, you know, 25 minutes. So that's 25 more minutes of suspense. But those 25 minutes come and go, and the next thing I know, this plane swings around, and we're on a runway, and it starts to accelerate and make get very loud and get very fast, and we're going and going, and suddenly we're up in the air, and I'm um, looking out the window, and the plane actually banks to the left. So we're right over Jamaica Bay. Now, remember, I'm from Rockaway, so I know this geography very well. And so now we're flying over the subway line that I just got off, you know, to get to the airport. And then we're flying over Rockaway, and I see the projects where I live. I see Junior High School 198, where I just graduated. A moment later, I see Far Rockaway High School, which I'm supposed to start uh, in the fall. And it's like, goodbye. I was on my way, you know, and then little puffy clouds, and I'm flying over the south shore of Long Island, and it's just amazing. So, you know, off we're going. It's getting dark now. It's night is falling, and they're coming along with dinner trays, and I'm just, I'm just polishing off my dinner. When I hear a flight attendant behind me, you know, coming down the aisle, calling someone, and it was to me, obviously, my name. So I ask her, are you looking for me? What's your name? Well, this is my name, Victor Rodek. May I see your ticket? And I tell her, well, I don't have a ticket, but I have a boarding pass. Would you like to see that? And uh, she says, come with me. And I get up and I go with her down the aisle into the cockpit of the plane. 
Now I'm in the cockpit of the plane, and you know, it's really, it's dark, and all the lights are glowing, those little dials and everything, and it's, uh, and the pilot's sitting right there, and he starts talking to me. And I guess maybe the second bravest thing I did was say to him, I'm not going to answer any of your questions unless you promise me my father isn't going to have to pay for this. I can't believe I said that, but I did. And he actually promised. And so I tell him the story. He wants to know, you know, what the deal is. And I explain whatever I had to explain. And that was that. So I'm told to go back to my seat. And as soon as I get outside the cockpit, I'm surrounded by crew members. And they're all excited. And, you know, they're saying to me, well, you know, if you stay in Israel, I have a son your age. You can come stay with us in Herzliya. I remember that specifically. They were very, very nice. So now I'm going back to my seat. You know, we spend the night on the plane. Now it's the morning. Uh, time goes by. I remember looking down and seeing France with my own eyes. You know, it was like the Massif Central, which is the, the central mountains of central France. And recognizing it and just being thrilled that I'm flying over the Europe, you know, and and then sometime after that, I guess we're by Greece, and then they, the, crew invi- <laughs> the crew invites me up to the front of the aircraft. They have a little compartment there where they, where they stay, I guess. And I'm thinking, oh, isn't this nice? They want me to be with them, you know. And so I go up there, and I'm sitting at the front of the plane. And now, the, the moment I've been waiting for, you know, we're descending, descending, descending. suddenly there's the coastline of Israel. And I think I got it teary. I don't know. I was just, I was just stunned to see it. And you get closer and closer and lower and lower. And now you're flying right over Tel Aviv. And I recognized all of the uh, landmarks that I had read about and seen pictures of. It was like the, the, the Hilton Hotel and the Mann Auditorium. And just seeing these things in front of my eyes, you know, traffic, little cars going by. And I just, again, it was the first time I'd flown. So it was the, the mixed phenomenon of landing in Israel and landing at all. And so the plane gets lower and lower and lower and lands. And, you know, the engines are reversed and it gets very, very loud. And then we slow down. And um, I remember being struck by this teeny-weeny little air terminal, you know, coming from JFK. There was this little airport. And, um, and now the plane stops and two police cars are driving out <laughs> to the plane. And I'm the first one off the plane. I'm escorted off by the crew and I'm put in the back of a police car, and they take me to some place. And I guess I was interrogated. You know, they wanted they had all kinds of questions. There were people there, some in uniform, some not. I remember there was a pregnant woman there. They were all asking me questions. It was, it was just an interview. And then they sort of ended up by saying, well, this plane is refueling now. It's turning around, and it's going back to New York in an hour, and you're going to be on it. And at that point, I sort of had a fit. I said, no, I didn't want to go back. Please don't make me go back. You see, I'll tell you what my plan was. My plan was to sneak off the plane the same way I snuck on the plane and um, find a bicycle and find a kibbutz. You know, go off on the bicycle, find a kibbutz, and then pretend I didn't know who I was and they'd have to adopt me. And that was the plan that I had, you know. And it was not going to work, obviously. I was, they had me. But I, I, I was still, I wanted to stay. I mean, I came all this way. And so it went on. More questions, more heated debates behind closed doors. Then, finally, they presented him with their decision. Okay, we're going to let you stay for one day. But you have to sign this paper that says you're not going to run away. 
Victor signed, and the clock started ticking. And so then I was taken to the home of, I believe, um, he was either the head of the airline, El Al, or he was the head of the airport. Yep, that's right. After running away from home, sneaking onto an airplane, and traveling roughly 5,600 miles across the world at the expense of some poor traveler left stranded at the airport, Victor was given the royal treatment. Back at the home of that head of El Al or the airport or whoever he was, Victor was served a bountiful lunch while neighbors crowded around him like he was some kind of celebrity. After that, he and the official's family went out for a nice bike ride, followed by a short nap. They took him to Jaffa and Ramallah, and then he was bundled into another family's car and whisked away to Jerusalem. We get to Jerusalem, and they bring me to what I've since learned now was the Damascus Gate. And we walked through the Damascus Gate, and suddenly I was in the old city of Jerusalem. And we went all the way to the, the wall, the hotel, and I put on tefillin, and I said the bracha, whatever you know they told me to do. It was, I was just a state of disbelief. From there, he was taken back to Tel Aviv, where he spent the night at yet another host's house. And uh, the following morning, I went with the older son to get bread, and it was just fun to be in this environment of leaving the house, walking down a street, going to a bakery, just like normal life, but in Israel. Victor spent his last few hours touring Tel Aviv with his hostess. She took him to the top of the tallest building to get a full view. And, um, and then she took me to the airport where uh, I was catching the flight back to New York. The return flight was uneventful. They had a stopover in London, but... I was not allowed off the plane. I had no documents, I had no passport, I had nothing. Then, just over 48 hours after he'd left, Victor was back where he started, at JFK Airport. He stepped off the plane, preparing himself for his parents' wrath or whatever other fallout was coming his way. It was dark by then. And uh, we were met by um, an El Al, I guess, a PR person. I mean, a tall, beautiful woman uh, who led me into a room where there were reporters. And I actually had a news conference. Hello, Vic. Hello. How do you feel? Fine and tired. What did you do? Just took a plane to Israel. <laughs> my, my parents were there, and these reporters were there, and you know, some other folks were there, neighbors of ours. And, so they, were looking for me and they interviewed me. Did you know? And what you what's really interesting is I have a recording of that interview. It's on a record that I have. When you said you just wanted to go, was it uh, that you wanted to get away from home for a while? Possibly. I'm not sure myself. I just felt like leaving. That's why I left. So how do you feel now that you've been over there? Did you like it? I enjoyed it. I had a wonderful time in Israel. Would you go back? Yes, I would, and I will. The same way? No, I'll be a paying passenger. At the end of the conversation, the reporters turned to Victor's father. Mr. Rodak, it's traditionally Dad's job to administer discipline. Have you given any consideration as to what you're going to do? Well, I think when we get home, we're going to have a long talk. My wife and I will decide on what, we'll, what we will do in regard to Victor. Are you a whipping father, or do you rely on psychology? No, I, I can understand some of the things that motivated him, but I certainly do not condone what he did. And we're going to take that up when we do get home. And then I went home. 
my parents, you know, I, I got a ride home with neighbors. We drove back to the house, and bingo, I was back. There were, of course, consequences. Victor's parents were very upset with him. They sent me to see a shrink, which I guess, you know, was to their credit. Um, it was probably not a bad idea, although I was mortified at the time. So these are my souvenirs. Victor shows us a collection of yellowed postcards and newspaper clippings. Boy's ad lib trip to Israel, Long Island Press. I have an article here from L'Information, which is a French-Israeli newspaper. This is from the New York Times, this little bit. My son, the Globetrotter, from New York Post. That's me with my mother. There he is in a faded photo, a perfect specimen of early adolescence, taller than his mom but shorter than his dad, skinny, and with a sheepish, boyish grin and just a hint of pride. Given his love of Israel, you might expect that Victor headed off to join the IDF or a kibbutz just as soon as he was old enough. But over time, other passions overtook that one. Still, his trip clearly left its mark on him as one of those life-changing events. And he's not the only one who remembers it. Um, and to this day, you know, rarely, like uh, on Facebook, does anyone know what happened to Victor Rodak who made that trip to Israel? Now, I've been back to Israel, I just went back for the sixth time last year. And um, I still have a very strong connection to that place. For Vox Tablet, I'm Julie Subrin. Julie Subrin is the producer of our podcast. Victor Rodak is a psychiatrist. He lives in Jackson Heights, Queens, where he shared his story with us. If you want to hear the entire recording of that press conference that he gave when he was just back at the airport in 1967, you can find it on our website, tabletmag.com. If you liked our story today, please do share it with others. And there's definitely more where that came from. Subscribe to Vox Tablet on iTunes to be sure that you never miss an episode. And in fact, tell everybody that you know to subscribe. We want more listeners, and that means you and your friends. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. We hope you'll come back next time.